Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Every year, thousands of tourists touch down at New Orleans' Louis Armstrong Airport, expecting to partake in an unforgettable culinary experience. With no shortages of places to drink and dine, the first question visitors often ask is, where do locals go? On this week's show, we're exploring neighborhood spots that have a strong local following in the Crescent City. We begin with Morning Call, a coffee and beignet shop with over 150 years of local history. Co-owner Bob Hennessy talks with us about the beloved cafe that opens early and closes late on the edge of Mid-City. Then, we visit local institution Juan's Flying Burrito. A quarter century ago, founder Warren Chapatan saw a lot of fine dining restaurants and funky dives in New Orleans, with nothing in between. So we set out to create a self-styled punk rock burrito shop. And finally, we make our way over to the popular bywater spot, Pizza Delicious, a place locals simply call Pizza D. We're eating like locals on this week's Louisiana Eats. New Orleans is famous for many foods, but few compared to the beignet. While it's unclear how and when these unique square donuts originally appeared here, today they are part of the city's cultural and culinary DNA. That's thanks in no small part to Morning Call, opened by Austrian immigrant Joseph Jurisic in the French market in 1870. Offering beignets and café au lait, Morning Call remained in that location for just over a century. After four decades in Metairie and a period in City Park, Morning Call was without a home for two years. That all changed in 2021 with the opening of their newest spot on the corner of Canal Boulevard and City Park Avenue in Mid-City. With their iconic neon-lit sign once again beckoning beignet buffs, we thought we'd check in with Bob Hennessy, who runs Morning Call with his brother, Michael. Well, Bob, I'm so happy to talk with you about one of my favorite subjects, beignets and cafe au lait, or coffee and donuts for uh. many of us who grew up just calling it that. So take us back to the beginning and tell me how your family became affiliated with this New Orleans landmark business. Well, I was, uh, I was introduced to Morning Call when I was about 13 years old. Uh, my mom had a—she uh, actually had divorced my dad and remarried one of the owners of Morning Call. 
So it was basically my stepfather's grandfather that opened it 151 years ago. So as a, as a youngster, um, you know, we, we became acquainted with the business. And uh, when I got a little bit older, I started working there. And this was at the Metairie store. As I was going to school, I would work there for holidays and weekends, uh, fry beignets and do the dishes and, you know, just pretty much everything you could do over there and, and learn the business. Eventually, I went to college, and when I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. My stepdad had six of his own kids. He had a brother who was involved with the business. So we weren't sure if there was going to be a future for us, but just so happened that we things fell into place. So it's been about a 45-year journey for me so far. What is it that you believe sets your beignets off from the rest? Well, it's the recipe, first of all. First and foremost, no one has a sourdough recipe exactly like ours. I don't think anyone has a sourdough recipe. The preparation, the rolling of it by hand is something that we still do. We don't have any machinery to roll them out. Um, I, I do it old school, the way the old beignet rollers taught me how to do it, which is kind of a kind of a, a special art form that some of my beignet rollers can't get still, just the, the way that you pick the beignets up. The old guys would, would cut them in squares, and you pick them up, one on each finger, and then you shake the flour off because you don't want all the flour in the fryer. And then when we fry the beignets, we do not, like, submerge them totally under the oil like some of our competitors do. We throw them in, they pop up, we float them, and then we flip them. And the final result, when people eating these beignets and they love in it and they love the city of New Orleans, that's that's the payoff. Well, I know that you had at the Metairie store so many people right. who worked for you for so long. That's and right. you know what what's your average morning call employee like? Tell me about yeah, those special well, people. Well, they are special, and without them, we couldn't do what we do. So they're, they're essential to our success. And the, I guess the thing that I'm so proud of is that they, we have so many of them that work for me still. Uh, a lot of places are struggling to get people to, to work in their business. Uh, you know, we luckily, thank God, we don't have that problem. But they, they were dying to come back. Most of the people love to be around other people, mm -hmm. which is what we like. Because New Orleans is a people-friendly place. And, and all, of the, all of our guests are like, wow, you all are so friendly. Everyone's so friendly. And I think that's what we offer that maybe other places don't. If you go in a morning call, look at the menu, you see, a, you see some faces up there. Those are previous or prior employees. One of which, uh, right over the, the area where we serve, is uh, Michael Short. They called him Wolfie, a wolfman. And people who went to the Metairie store maybe remember him. He would work the, the graveyard shift overnight, and he would howl like a wolf. <laughs> Middle of the night, and people are, like, drinking their coffee and looking around. Whoa, whoa, the wolf man. But he was a, he was a good guy, and he, he used to love to wear costumes when he got off of work. He would love to dress up. He'd sit by the cash register in an alien suit on one time, a big alien head. And he was a cowboy, and he'd go through these themes, and— He'd walk home, and I think the, I think some neighbors had, had called the police on him. He got man, they got some crazy cowboy walking around Metairie, and the police knew him. He goes, "Oh, that's just Wolfie." They knew him. That's just Wolfie. So he was a he was a he was a good guy, but we have his picture up there. So he's like, you know, just a lot of good people working there over the years. We're blessed, and 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 the good thing about 
you know, opening a new store with experienced people, it's like hitting the ground running. So you don't have this training phase. And it can be very difficult because not only the beignets, but the way we pour the coffee is very unique to Morning Call. So, Bob, explain why Café Ole is a whole lot more than just a cup of coffee. Oh, without a doubt. Well, first of all, you have to have specialized pots that we've used, and you cannot buy them from a restaurant supply store. These things are handmade many, many years ago by people who were artists in stainless steel. And it's almost like a watering, like a, I guess like a watering can almost. Mm-hmm. One of the pots, we call them, has boiled milk in it. And then the other one has our, our proprietary coffee and chicory blend, which is very dark, strong. And the way that we brew the coffee is very unique as well. I'm always fascinated with the pouring that goes right. on because you really kind of have to pour simultaneously? Well, that's how we like to do it. Sometimes they don't have the upper body strength, and these pots can be quite heavy. So, so some of the ladies and a couple of the guys will pour one pot at a time. And you can still have the, the good result, but uh, to me, pouring them both simultaneously is just the way to go. And then we like to create like bubbles when you pour it just kind of releases all the good flavors, and it looks so good. The presentation is wonderful. And it's an art form. It really is. And people think it's easy. And, um, and when you try to train someone, usually it's all over the counter. It's in the saucer. <laughs> so, I mean, we've gotten pretty good. Actually, at the, um, I think we had someone at the French market used to put a Coke bottle on the ground, and they could pour from waist height into a little opening in a Coke bottle. Show off. So it takes a little <laughs> it takes a little skill. And that's part of the whole show of Morning Call. People love to see the beignets being made, the coffee being brewed, the the coffee being poured. It's it's a show. But you must get some very odd reactions from out of towners from folks who perhaps are not familiar with the Cafe Olay and Beignets. I have to tell you that right. Once upon a time, this MD who has a great position here in town but isn't from here, he wanted to meet me for coffee one day. It was when you all were still in the park. I said, great, I'll see you at morning call. And we, st- we he's, he tried so hard to order something that you didn't have. <laughs> He'd say, I'll just have my coffee black. And they'd say, no, cafe au lait. And he'd say, Americana. Like maybe they weren't speaking English, you know? And so it's unusual to have to train a customer a little bit, huh? Yeah, it is. But, you know, we will serve it to the customer black. But I usually ask them to sign a waiver first. (laughs) Or or at the very least, I I do give them a sample. Or I'll ask them, have you had it here before? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the out-of-towners. And sometimes men get real, like, macho. Oh, I can handle it and 99 percent of the time they can't handle it (laughs) but um, but we just give them a little taste and then either they'll say because it's very good but you have to like black strong coffee bob from the bottom of my heart i want to thank you not only for coming to talk with me today but just for giving the city the thing that we all love so much, that morning call yumminess. Thank you, Bob. Well, you're welcome. And, and I'd like to thank all of our loyal customers and all of our new customers that don't know about morning call. And one thing I just want to say is try all of the beignets out there and then decide who you like the best because there is a difference. 
Bob Hennessy, co-owner of Morning Call. The iconic donut shop is back open in their new home on the corner of Canal Boulevard and City Park Avenue in Mid-City. beignets always sold in threes? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Why are beignets always sold in threes? This is a question I've been asked countless times, and back in 2019, when I was working on an article for Biz Magazine about the ubiquitous donut, I posed that question to Jay Roman, third generation of Café Dumont's Fernandez family. Jay Roman's grandfather, Hubert Fernandez, purchased the original French market Café du Monde stand in 1942. Interestingly, at the time, Jay said those delicious powdered sugar-coated treats were commonly called French market donuts. He credits his grandfather with rebranding them as beignets, an effort Hubert began in 1958. No matter what you call them, an order always consisted of three beignets. Roman's explanation, I quote, My grandfather always sold them in threes, so that's what we still do today. If you have a better answer, please let me know. You can always reach me at poppy at poppytooker.com. And for the record, no matter how many are in a serving, 
beignets make for some good Louisiana Eats. Hey, I'm Warren Chalbaton, president over here at Juan's Flying Burrito. Hi, I'm Jay Morris, and I am also one of the owners of Juan's Flying Burrito. A New Orleans institution, Juan's Flying Burrito first began serving its signature Creole Mexican fare in 1997. Since then, the company has expanded to four locations across the Crescent City. We joined Juan's founder and president, Warren Chapaton, and co-owner, Jay Morris, at the original Flying Burrito location on Magazine Street. I began by asking Warren how and why he felt the city was ready for Juan's Flying Burrito when it opened a quarter century ago. Believe it or not, in 1996, New Orleans was made up of a lot of really nice restaurants and then a lot of like kitchenettes and corner stores and things of that nature. The uh, middle market uh, restaurant, as I would call it, really did not exist at the time. Um, I was originally from New Orleans. I'd spent 15 years in Atlanta. In Atlanta, there was only a few high-end restaurants and lots of middle market restaurants. I worked in a couple of different concepts in Atlanta that were that type, and we felt like uh, New Orleans was ripe for that type of concept, uh, something that was casual, where you could come as you are, that everybody could enjoy, that was uh, value-oriented. And uh, we also had been working in restaurants in Atlanta that supported the touring musicians so they could always work at a place and have a job when they came back from uh, being on tour. And so we wanted to bring that also into the uh, marketplace here. We're just a punk rock burrito shop. So. How did you decide on the type of cuisine that you all were going to offer? It seemed like at the time um, there wasn't a lot of that type of food in New Orleans, which I would call uh, gringo Mexican. Gringo's doing our take <laughs> on it, you know, with a little New Orleans, a little Caribbean thrown in. Tell me about the reception to the restaurant. When you all first opened up, what was it like? What were things that you heard from people? I don't know, Jay, you have some thoughts? So, so I, I wasn't here right when they opened. I'm not an original owner. Um, I started working in June of 97 with these guys. I, uh, I quit my job as a cook at Commander's to come over here and take a break and wash some dishes. And I ne you know, ended up never leaving and eventually buying into the concept. So I came in February after they opened and it was kind of a unique concept in New Orleans. Uh, you know, I'm from here and I used to go to Kuko's as a kid. Um, there was, what, Vaqueros on Maple Street. There was Santa Fe. There, there just were not that many options. There were no real, like, rock and roll kind of restaurants happening in the town. So it was, it was super interesting. Um, there were always artists and kids uh, hanging out here, especially in the early days. You know, we had tagged the walls. Yeah, you're right on the walls. Uh, we had Positive Space Gallery was right next door. Um, it was a really interesting scene. It was certainly uh, not as developed in this neighborhood then. Um, and so it felt really rough. And a lot of the makers and artisans of New Orleans were living in this neighborhood at that time. Um, so it was fun. And how did it grow? You know, we were we started off as a counter service establishment. Um, and so people would have to wait in line and we would have uh, funky little postcards that people sent to us would be the table markers. 
um, that we would send a food runner out with the food to deliver. It took two or three years, but eventually we got to a spot where, you know, people were waiting so long to make those orders that we had to move to table service. And then shortly after that, we, we found that people were still waiting a long time just to get in the door. And we felt like we needed another location to help with some of those crowds get in to, to see what we were doing. With that in mind, um, New Orleans is colloquial as far as neighborhoods go. And so people would come in and be like, oh, we have to go to the garden district. You know, we live in mid city. We come <laughs> over here anyway, but we're not garden district people. We're not uptown people. We're downtown people or we're mid city people. Can't we have one in mid city? <laughs> And so, you, so the call. you just have to do what you have to do. So basically, whatever the customer says, we just try to go with the flow. It's incredible to have that relationship with your customers like you do. I mean, we're New Orleanians. We like to go out and party just as much as anybody else does. So we are friends with a lot of our customers. And people like what they like. They choose something on the menu. They stick with it. They always want it. They want to, like go to Tulane or Loyola or UNO or whatever school they go to, Xavier, and then they, they come back to town and they want that same thing, the same way they had it 10 years before. So I think there's a combination between, oh, they made it their place, one of their haunts, and then they come back for exactly what they wanted always. I do have to ask you one more question too. Why is the burrito flying? Well, I mean, the music influence, you know, the Grand Parsons Flying Burrito Brothers. And my name is Warren, and a girl I was dating a while ago, uh, her mom thought she was dating a Mexican guy named Juan. <laughs> so maybe I am, I am Juan, but we are all Juan. <laughs> we are all Juan. Yes, and that's, that's how we uh, feel at Juan's, too. It's, uh, it's a neutral ground kind of place. Everybody's welcome. So what's the future like for Wands? What are y'all looking forward to? We're gonna expand around the Gulf Coast into say Pensacola Marketplace. It's a fun little hip town like New Orleans. They have tourist season, but they also have a pretty nice little art scene and a music scene over there. And maybe some destination locations. Uh, I know Jay wants to go to Vegas or Amsterdam. <laughs> Follow the hard rock model. <laughs> well, this has just been such a wonderful eye-opening lesson about this very important homegrown New Orleans business. I am so grateful to you all for taking the time to talk with us and show us all how we really are all one. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Poppy. Warren Chapaton and Jay Morris of Juan's Flying Burrito in New Orleans. At the dark end of the street, that's where we'll always meet. Hiding in shadows where we don't belong. Living in darkness to hide.
located in New Orleans Bywater neighborhood, just a block from Crescent Park, is Pizza Delicious, a popular pizzeria that's been feeding locals since 2012 and is still going strong. What do we want? What's your favorite Pizza Delicious pizza? Back in 2015, the Louisiana Eats crew stopped in on a busy weekday afternoon. You love the margarita too? Yeah, we could just do the margarita. Okay. The dining room was filled with patrons, chowing down on garlic knots and slices of thin crust pizza. <laughs> Don't you love pizza negotiations? <laughs> we ordered my favorite, a 16-inch margarita and sat down with co-owner Michael Friedman to discuss his journey from pop-up to popular restaurateur. So I'm Michael Friedman, and with my partner Greg Algarden, we are the two owners of Pizza Delicious down in the Bywater. I came to New Orleans to go to Tulane University. Freshman move-in day for my residence, I trained to be an RA. My sophomore year was um, also evacuation day for Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that was an interesting twist to in my New Orleans experience. I was here a year before the storm and um, came back, was anxious to get back, finished up school, and Greg was my roommate towards the end of college, and we just kind of um, always lamented the state of pizza in New Orleans, both being native New Yorkers and we had this idea, we're like, hey, if we start making pizza um, and it's good, people might show up. And we had no idea how many people would. We started this pop-up right down in the Bywater, a few blocks from where we are now. And it was amazing. We were just doing Sunday nights. Um, we had a pay-as-you-go cell phone, um, and we only did to-go advance orders of pizza. And within a couple months, it just exploded. We ended up doing that for like two and a half years. People just kind of encouraging us to open up a brick and mortar. We started looking, 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 and did not want to leave the neighborhood because the neighborhood had just been so supportive. There's so many people living here who are just dying for different types of food. So we, uh, we looked and looked and looked and found this warehouse in the Bywater and um, just kind of went for it. We didn't know much about what we were doing, but we knew our pizza was pretty good at that point, and that's what kind of carried us through. You know, a lot of cynical people will say to me, over a thousand new restaurants in New Orleans since, since Hurricane Katrina? Well, when's the attrition coming? Surely that many restaurants can't be supported. What do you think about that? I mean, I think we have always wondered, it's just continued to get busier and busier when we've opened, and we're always like, okay, when's this gonna taper off? Surely everyone's come to the Bywater already, like, uh, they've had their experience, like it's nice, and, and it just seems like more and more and more people just keep coming to the area. People have heard of us, heard of, of this neighborhood, never really ventured out here. And the most surprising part to me has just been tourism in the past couple of years has just been, I mean, we get tourists like in here coming, walking from the quarter who read that like this is a cool neighborhood, like you really can't experience New Orleans without a trip to the Bywater, which is super cool. I mean, it's really cool for us. We had, you know, a table of, of Brits in here the other day, and I'm like, how did you find out about this place? You know, <laughs> like, how did, and they're, and they're like, we heard it was really great. You know, someone told us it was awesome. We walked in the 95 degree weather from the quarter to get to your restaurant. And eat some pizza. Yeah, it's like, I love that. You know, it's so cool. What is your favorite time of day down here? What's your favorite part of being right here at Crescent Park at Pizza Delicious? 
I love a couple of things. I would say the weekends are really, really cool just during the day when people finally wake up from their hangovers and are finally getting out and are just, it's become such a great area to walk around in. There's, there's a lot of families in this neighborhood now, which is very, very cool. And so it's just like peeking my head out into the street and just seeing how many people are just walking around. There's little art markets that set up. And so I love weekend days and also at night when it just kind of gets when there are like plays going on there's a lot of reasons for people to be in the area and it's just kind of like bustling around the neighborhood and i'm like this was not happening a few years ago it's really really cool it's exciting for us i mean getting a huge like late night drunk rush of people is so gratifying (laughs) we feel happy to provide that service describe what makes your pizza so delicious and you know, I, I think I have to have a piece of pizza. I was pizza. gonna say, don't let your pizza no, no, get no. too cold. It's killing me. <laughs> What's the experience like when you come here as a customer, and what makes your pizza so good? Well, we make New York style pizza, um, which was something that we were having a hard time finding down here. I'm watching you eat it right now, you're doing the right thing, folding the crust. Um, we have big 18-inch, sometimes even 20-inch pies, depending on how we make them. And the reason they vary is because we hand toss every single one of them, make all our dough here, make all of our sauce here, make as many toppings here as we can. And so we just get really, really into making a, a really good slice of pizza because it's what we grew up eating. Is Pizza Delicious a standalone experience in the Bywater, or might we see it someplace else one day? It's a very good question. We get it a lot, which is flattering. Um, as of right now, we just want to keep this one place going. We love it so much, and we want the food to be always great and always on point and, and want it to be consistent. And it's tough, you know, with the volume that we end up doing. And so... We'll see. We'll see. We have an open mind, but we just kind of want to enjoy what we're doing right now and really, really love being where in this neighborhood and, and keeping it going. Bravo, Mike Friedman, for turning <laughs> the pizza world of New Orleans around. And thank you so much for having us at Pizza Delicious today. Thank you so much for coming down here. It's always a pleasure to see you. From 2015... That was Michael Friedman, co-owner of Pizza Delicious in New Orleans' Bywater neighborhood. Coming up next, we meet Jeffrey Meeker, owner of French Truck Coffee. It took only one cup of coffee from San Francisco to inspire him to become a New Orleans coffee purveyor. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. 
fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this summer. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish. Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. In late 2022, Starbucks made an announcement that left a bitter taste for some New Orleanians. The Seattle-based chain said they'd be closing their flagship coffee shop on the corner of Canal Street and St. Charles after nine years in business. But the site wasn't shuttered for long. In a matter of months, a similar coffee brand moved in, a local favorite, French Truck Coffee. When it opened in July, it became the 11th coffee shop for the New Orleans company that has expanded in size and popularity since its founding in 2012. French Truck gets its name from the tiny antique yellow truck that owner Jeffrey Meeker drove in the company's earliest days. It evokes Parisian cafes in times past. But Jeffrey and his team are at the vanguard of what many are calling the third wave coffee movement in America, a culture that comes with its own vocabulary, from cortado to iced OG. In 2016, we visited Jeffrey at their original Magazine Street location for a tour and cupping. That's coffee's equivalent to a wine tasting. To begin, I asked Jeffrey how he went from a career in fine dining to roasting coffee. So I came to New Orleans back in 1999 to help open the W Hotel that is no longer on Poitras um, and worked all over the country in fine dining restaurants. Then we moved away right after the storm um, and while we were away my cousin brought me a bag of freshly roasted coffee and I tasted it and it was better than any coffee I'd ever had in my life and I had been working in fine dining restaurants all my life and I had no idea why coffee could taste this much better than it had ever tasted in all these nice restaurants that I worked in. It was from a company in San Francisco that you might know of, Blue Bottle. So I started doing the research and I figured out that the guy who started Blue Bottle was a clarinetist in the San Francisco Philharmonic had no cooking They're experience. Qualified. I figured if he could do it, I could do it. And so I started putting it all together um, and I fell in love with these little French trucks. Where'd you find these little French trucks? Well, this one is actually was built in Belgium and was with a collector in New York. Um, we also have one that is actually the oldest example in the United States. It's a 1955 um, and it was in uh, Quebec. And then our original one, which is the little yellow one that's the same color as uh, Veuve Clicquot label, which is yes. where I got the color. 
is uh, from Bordeaux and was a plumber's truck. Um, but there's not a whole lot of them left. There's only about 100 examples in the United States. They're two-cylinder engines, so little tiny engine, and they get 50 miles per gallon, and they're perfect for New Orleans. So, Jeffrey, the business really started in the little trucks. What Kinda. happened? It, the trucks were my delivery vehicle, and obviously my marketing as well. Um, but I started out in my laundry room with a little tiny roaster, and I went around to all the people I knew in, in the food business and said, hey, I'm back in New Orleans, and they're, oh, what are you doing? What restaurant are you working at? And I explained it, and they said, oh, well, let me try some. And then we just started building more and more and more and started doing more and more wholesale. We started out in the warehouse right behind the building we're at now with no windows, barely any air conditioning. Then we moved to this space and opened the little shop in the front, and then most recently we opened the place on Dryads. Would you talk to us briefly about what is being called today third wave coffee? Would you walk us through that? Sure. So first wave coffee would be considered Folgers, Maxwell House, the stuff our parents bought when we were growing up. And uh, it used to be that you would go to the, the, the small local store and they'd have a coffee roaster in the corner and a bag of coffee and they'd just roast some every week and everybody'd go buy it. Well then, World War One to the mechanization of pretty much all of our food stuffs happened. Um, and then you got these huge roasters like Folgers and Maxwell House, and it became less regional. Then you had second wave, and second wave really happened in the 60s and 70s, and that was Starbucks, Pete's. A lot of those national brands started really changing things. And you know, a lot of people have some disdain for what Starbucks does, but if it weren't for Starbucks, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, because people wouldn't pay good money for coffee, they would just think Folgers pricing. You know, you can still buy a can of Folgers for under $10, and that's a big can. So when I tell somebody I've got a bag of coffee that's $14 or $15, they don't blink because of Starbucks. Third wave, um, and you know, technically I guess we fall under it, is what we do, which is more of a um, connoisseur's approach to coffee, more of a uh, craft and very much pulling from the culinary world and the wine world on how you do things to maximize the experience of the coffee. And what about the mystique of the pour over? Well, it's not complicated, number one. Number two, it is a uniquely American way to prepare coffee. But you know, if you have the right equipment, the right temperature of water, and the right ratio of water to coffee, it's, to my estimation, the very best cup of coffee you can have because of the, the craft of it. And we actually just installed a robot at our Dryad Street that makes pour-overs, and so they are perfectly the same every time. Oh my goodness, from a little teeny, teeny antique truck <laughs> from robots. France to a robot. Now, yes. you really hit the full spectrum here. <laughs> yes. So, what are we going to see next? Um, let's go inside. We'll show you some of the equipment and then we'll um, taste some of the fruits of that later. So, so now we're where all the action happens. Right. This is all of our manufacturing currently. Um, and you can see with these huge piles of coffee, um, that's about a week and a half worth of coffee that we'll roast. Um, when it comes in, it comes in from the farmers um, having been stripped down to what we can roast. Mm -hmm. And you can smell that. It almost smells like green peas a little bit. Yeah, it does. Um, and this is how it comes in um, from all over the world. So in front of you, you've got Colombia, 
There's some Sumatra, Peru. How do you source your coffee? Our coffee, um, we work with a broker and the broker helps put relationships together with um, farmers. Um, we sample roast the coffee. So we get these little tiny samples and we roast those up and we taste them and we do a cupping like we're gonna do here in a few minutes to ascertain the quality, um, what roast level we should roast it to, to make sure that it's maximizing its flavor potential. It's very much like food or wine. You, with wine, you've gotta make sure that it's got just the right amount of oak and just the right amount of age. Same thing with coffee. We have to just, just the right amount of roast. Um, and that's, that's important for us to figure out so that we can give our customers that information so that they can have as great an experience at home as we can provide in the cafes. Jeffrey, is it unusual for a relatively small coffee operation to have a relationship with the, directly with the farmers? It's changing and similar to the wine industry where all the farmers used to dump all their wine together and there was just Bordeaux wine. The coffee farmers have figured out that some of them do a better job than others, and so they ought to get paid more. And with the advent of technology, iPhones, etc., um, it's much easier to get those connections made. You don't have to get on a donkey and go down a trail to go talk to the farmer. You can get him on his iPhone and ask him how his crop's doing that year, and does he want to buy? Do can you buy from him again that year? Explain the economics of this. Well, um, the farmer um, does all of the work. Really, we are 10% of the equation. And so that farmer then goes to his local co-op and says, I wanna sell coffee. And if that local co-op is hooked up with someone like us, they can see how much potential that coffee has and then get it into our hands to say, your coffee's really good. You've been doing a really good job at a farmer. These guys will pay more because of the quality of your coffee. Have you met any of your farmers? Um, we have, and one of, it, it nearly moved me to tears was meeting one of our farmers and him standing with his family in front of a house with a bag of our coffee in his arms as a, like a trophy or a prize, explaining to us that the money that we had given him for his coffee helped him build the new house for his family. How exciting. Yeah. It must be so rewarding to not only be giving people truly delicious coffee, but to know you're making a difference in another part of the world. Yeah, and it makes everything make sense. And it gives us more reverence for what we're doing. Well, where would you like us to go now? Let's, yeah, let's look at some of the roasting equipment and um, explain how it works. And then we'll uh, taste some coffee. So um, this is our big baby. Um, this is our pride and joy. The coffee starts at the very top in this funnel. So you've got a big cylinder in there with paddles to move the beans around. And when the temperature is exactly right, the roaster has a trap door under here and it'll let all the beans into that chamber. And then as it cooks, it's very much like baking bread, we go through different stages of browning and caramelization so that we create those sugars in the coffee to make it sweet or bitter or citrusy. Visually, what are you looking for? Well, visually is not nearly as important as is scent and sound. Um, there sound? Are, yes. Coffee goes through something called first crack. And it happens around 385 to 390 degrees. And the coffee, it's almost like popcorn. It gives up and it makes a pop sound. We're going to hear it here in just a few minutes. It'll start popping. And that is a really good indication to the roaster that it's developed enough of those caramels and those flavors, but it's time to start paying attention to when to get it out of there and cool it off. And 
the smells, I think when you smelled it before, probably got a little baking bread. Uh huh. Um, we'll start getting more of those coffee smells. I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever heard about the sound. Our target temperature is really close. Let's stay here for just a second and watch what happens. So, downdraft has just turned on. We heard a beep. Um, that's the computer telling the fan to turn on so that we are ready to cool the coffee off so it doesn't go over temperature. And now the stirring mechanism has turned on and the door opens. So now we're at what we call our cupping table. And if you look at it, it's basically a giant lazy Susan on skateboard wheels. Um, <laughs> and what we do at this table is this is where we're deciding whether or not um, a coffee is of a quality we want to buy, number one. And then number two, after we have made the commitment to buying it, how do we want to roast it? So what I'd have you do to begin with is we've got five different coffees on the table, three single origin, and then there are also two blends on the table. So I'm gonna run the grinder here. difference between uh, freshly roasted coffee and coffee that's about, let's say, a month old, it's night and day. Um, so what we start out with is take it and just kind of knock it against your palm to, to shake up the molecules and give it a good sniff, and then we'll turn the table. So what we're doing now is we're ascertaining what different aromatics it has. And it may have chocolate, it may have almonds, blueberries, raspberries, mango, black pepper, coffee. Amazing. Yeah, coffee's just as, just as complicated as, as food and wine as far as the aroma compounds. So the next step in our cupping, now that our coffee has cooled down and we're taking the grounds off the top, is to slurp the coffee. Did you have a favorite? I think the one that I liked the best was the very, very darkest one. Oh yeah? I'm yeah. not surprised. Coffee is like food and wine. It's experiential. And it ties back to memories. Because aroma is our most tightly wound memory. So on the table, we had a Kenyan. This is from Peru. And that's a single origin. That's a single origin. This is La Gran Coque Rouge, which is our breakfast blend. And it's a Colombian-based blend that we serve to a lot of restaurants that would like to have a breakfast blend. This is an Ethiopian. And then this is our New Orleans Premium Dark Roast, which is the darkest of our coffees, and it's a blend of Colombian and Brazilian coffee. I guess you can't take the hometown <laughs> girl out of the hometown, even That's when right. it comes to gourmet coffee. That's right. So you want to end with your favorite? Yeah. OK. That was wonderful. I'm glad you liked it. Jeffrey Meeker, owner of French Truck Coffee speaking with us in 2016. Taste the flood, stop and stare. I drink a cup of coffee and start to combing out my hair. I drink 40 cups of coffee. 40 cups of coffee. 40 cups of coffee waiting for you to come home. 
that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.